0: Welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. Today, I am honored to be joined by Jay Kim to talk with him about his brand new book called Analog Christian Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. Now, If this is your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things that inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations or to have the type of conversations to maybe you can't find a place to have those conversations. And navigating faith as it relates to the digital world at large can sometimes be one of those conversations maybe you don't see a lot of people who are trying to figure that out or maybe you don't feel like you you have someone who you can talk with this about or maybe they just kind of brush you off and it just doesn't seem important well we want to have those types of conversations right here on the learner's corner podcast the other thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with them completely and then sometimes we learn from their example and sometimes that example might be a good example or a bad example but regardless we can learn from that and the last or not the last thing the other thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything whether that be something serious or something trivial and we're going to dive into that as it pertains to social media and really you know sometimes i think that this conversation can just get bogged down into social media but it is so much more than that, it's more of the, the digital age that we live in, the digital world that we, that we live in, and how does our faith intersect with that? And the last one is this, is we, we wanna do this for the people that maybe we feel responsible to, maybe because we had someone, uh, a mentor or a coach, or just someone who was there for us, and they mentored us really well. Or maybe you wish that you had that person, in your life and you feel regard, but regardless of whether or not you had that person you feel a sense of responsibility to help steward the next generation to help raise the next generation and that's why you do it and that's why it's important that we think through these things not only for ourselves but for the people who matter most to us whether that be our family or the people that we feel responsible for the people that we we love and care for the most. It's important for us to think about these things and to work through these things so that we can help them navigate as well. Not necessarily because we have all of the answers, but we can help guide them along the way. In some cases, that is learning or helping them learn how to think for themselves and engage in some of the larger topics and, and things that are happening worldwide. Now, as I mentioned today, I am talking with Jay Kim and... If you enjoy this conversation, or really you just enjoy the learner's Corner as a whole, the best way to keep up with us and to continue learning from us is by subscribing to my newsletter to where I give you a bunch of recommendations on what I'm currently thinking about, some of the things that I'm learning about, whether that be books or articles or podcast series or YouTube videos, um, a lot of digital age stuff that we're talking about. And so that's one of the things that i am currently thinking about in there um i guess that's that's some of the i want to give you some of the things that i'm thinking about and so subscribe to the newsletter on that now let me tell you a little bit about jay kim and then we will jump into my conversation with him jay kim serves as the lead pastor at westgate church in silicon valley he is the leader is on the leadership team of the regeneration project and co hosts the regeneration podcast he is also the author of analog church and currently lives in silicon valley with his wife and two children and without any further wait here is our conversation It's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Excited about our conversation.
0: Yeah, and just as we're getting started, you know, one of the things as I was reading through your book, Analog Christian, you reference so many different studies, so many different books and everything. And I'm like, okay, this guy (laughs) is a very much a big learner. And so I would just love to ask you, what are some of the things that you're learning about right now or some of the things that have captured your attention and imagination right now?
1: Oh my goodness, so much, so, so much. Um, gosh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is not unique to me. I think a lot of people are having conversations about this, but yeah, I'm I'm uh, delving quite a bit into um, you know, anxiety and specifically leadership anxiety. That's one of those things I'm doing quite a bit these days, uh, in part just for me and my own growth. And then, in part, because of my role, you know, I uh, I help lead a, a church and a staff, and it's a, a somewhat large staff, a lot of a lot of people on the team. So, just working through interpersonal dynamics and all the various sort of personal anxieties that we carry into the room, and how that creates a sort of communal um, cultural anxiety, and and navigating some of that. So, I'm leaning on the work of uh, like guys like Steve Cuss, who, yep. who's become a friend and um, different people like that. So that's one thing out of so, so many things (laughs) (laughs) that that I'm thinking about these days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Steve, Steve has been on the podcast before and we've talked about that, but yeah, tell me, tell me some of the things that you're learning that helps you manage that, that anxiety, especially, especially as it pertains to leadership too.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well naming it, you know, Steve Mm -hmm. talks a lot about naming it. That's one piece that's been really helpful um and and not just naming it but identifying it you know this whole concept that anxiety is not reality uh it's all the stuff we essentially this is layman's terms but essentially it's all the stuff we sort of play out in our minds you know and um and then juxtaposing that with freedom you know the freedom that uh that i think christ offers us you know the fact that we um uh, that we've been you know truth will set us free and the truth is the bottom line truth is that at the end of the day Christ rules and reigns and so if that's true then everything else is just kind of you know noise um yeah. so yeah i mean that's one thing there's so many things but that's yeah. one
0: thing that that comes to mind yeah and i think that ties into like what you talk about a lot in your book analog christian as well is is anxiety and like the the digital world as well can you touch on like those some of the connections that you see between between those things and even like the leadership dynamic that you're talking about as well
1: oh gosh yeah there's so much i mean uh, yeah i mean i i could talk endlessly about this uh one of the things that comes to mind is uh, um you know anxiety is often tied to a lack of contentment you know i think we're all searching for contentment um to, to live a life that feels worthwhile and in the digital age in particular contentment and finding contentment uh and experiencing deep contentment is a challenge because we live on uh what some some psychologists call the hedonic treadmill you know mm-hmm. hedonism meaning the pursuit of pleasure and it's a treadmill because you just like you're constantly moving but never arriving and so contentment always feels super elusive and i think that in some ways, dangerously, sort of throws us into um, uh, this vicious, endless spiral of utter despair. So, uh, and and that leads to just high anxiety. You know, you feel like you're stuck, and uh, yeah. So I see I see it in my own life. I see it in the lives of the people I serve, and um, so yeah. Again, that there's there's so much to say about that, but that's one thought that comes to mind. Just yeah. the utter lack of contentment in the digital age has made us an incredibly anxious people, and uh, even the the data, the statistics, are are bearing some of
0: that out. Mm. Yeah, and that that brings to mind like one of uh, one of the people that you reference in your book is Jim Wilder, and he has yeah. this this research and this thought that addictions are always at least in part a result of low levels of joy, and so that even makes me think of like we we try to soothe our anxiety. Mm. Through yeah. addictions, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to that concept of a hedonic treadmill. There is a there is a significant difference between joy, biblically speaking, joy and um, pleasure. And I think in the modern age, uh, in the late modern world, and particularly in the uh, the developed and advanced Western world, most people, when they think about joy, they're actually thinking about pleasure. So I will experience joy if I can go on that beautiful vacation to the Maldives and lay on that warm white sand beach with a drink in hand and, you know, perfect 80 degree day or whatever. Um, I will experience joy when I finally get over, uh, you know, this ailment or this thing that's causing me some sort of physical or emotional pain. And I feel better. When I feel better, I will experience joy. But biblical joy is is really quite different than that, you know? Um, and we we, according to Wilder and others, you know, we are constantly sort of chasing, Essentially, we're chasing pleasure and we're left utterly disappointed all the time because pleasure does not actually lead to joy. Pleasure is really fleeting. You know, it's like a kid chasing bubbles in the backyard. You chase and you grab it and then boom, it pops and it's gone. And that's sort of how pleasure works. And it's not to say pleasure is bad, uh, but it's a spark. You know, pleasure is a spark. But again, in, in, in our day and age, we've sort of translated that into joy we think that's what joy is you know you think about marie kondo you know the the organizing expert and her whole mantra is you know what sparks joy and and she says well you know if you find something in your house whether it's like an old t-shirt or some old tupperware or a book or whatever and if it doesn't spark joy you should discard it you should throw it away and that's all well and good when it comes to T-shirts and Tupperware and, and books maybe, but that's a terrible way to live a life, you know, and yet that's what we do. I mean, this is one of the reasons why when marriages end, so many people say, well, the spark is gone. And what they mean is, well, we, we must not love each other anymore because I don't feel the butterflies, you know, I grab the bubble and it burst and so we move on to the next. But if you live your life that way, you will again, you will just be utterly disappointed because those feelings always go away. The butterflies always leave, you know, they always fly away. But that's not joy. You know, joy is not chasing after the feeling. Uh, it's why we read that Jesus, you know, in, in, in Hebrews, the writer tells us that Jesus um, goes to the cross for the joy set before him, which literally makes zero sense. If you're talking about joy as pleasure, there was nothing pleasurable about Jesus's journey to Calvary. And yet that's, that's the biblical understanding of joy. It's essentially the sort of meaning and significance and uh, the weightiness of life that you find on the far side, often on the far side of, of pain and sacrifice and, you know, long journeys through the deep, dark and difficult valleys of life. And I think that's actually what humans are looking for is joy, like real meaningful joy. But we almost never get there because we're so busy chasing pleasure, you know, and we medicate our lack of joy with pleasure, which thrusts us into this just endless, vicious cycle of a joyless life. And uh, I think the way of Jesus offers us, you know, a a better, a better way forward.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts on to is do we just pursue pleasure just because it's easier or what what do you think?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not monolithic. I don't think there's any one particular reason. I think a lot of the time. Yeah, that's probably one of the main reasons why it is easier to pursue pleasure. Another reason is honestly, it just feels better. Like, pleasure just feels better than joy. But if you live life based solely on feelings, on how things feel, um, it's destructive. Like, it tastes better to eat candy and not vegetables. But my kids, if they just existed on a diet of candy, I'd be a horrible parent, you know? Um, It feels better uh, in some ways to sleep with all sorts of different people, but that leads to a destructive life of loneliness and isolation, um, because real joy comes from deep, meaningful commitment where physical pleasure is the expression of a deep abiding love, not the other way around. So, you know, I think that's why we chase pleasure. It's, it is easier in some ways and it's just, it just feels better. But the danger in that is a life that just feels good all the time is not actually the good life. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, it's a destructive, it's a destructive life. Uh, So, and, and any addict would tell you that even the thing that feels good, the second time you do it, it doesn't feel quite as good. And then the third time, not nearly as good. And then on and on. And so you find yourself, um, again, spiraling into things like addiction, you know, and uh, all sorts of destructive, destructive realities. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from just the desire or, or the sort of, sort of insatiable hunger to medicate our despair with things that feel good. When in reality, that's actually not the way out of despair, mm-hmm. you know, so.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was most looking forward to asking you about is i know that you uh spent a lot of time living in silicon and around in silicon valley and around there and i would just love to hear what are some of the things that maybe you feel like hey i i maybe you have a better understanding than the rest of us because you are like kind of in the in maybe the epicenter of where like a lot of like the digital world you know is created and formed and all of that stuff i would just love to hear your perspective on what yeah. What do you think you've learned through living in Silicon Valley as it pertains to like the digital world and everything?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've spent basically my whole life here in the Silicon Valley. My, my uncle, I lived with my uncle. My mom and I lived with my uncle's family for many years when I was a kid. And uh, he worked for IBM. So we had all these personal computers in the house. So I've, I've kind of grown up around it. Um, you know, it doesn't make me an expert by any means. You yeah. know, it doesn't really matter. And anybody can read and study and do the work. So I certainly am not an expert. I will say one of the things that proximity has afforded me, meaning proximity to um, one, just like being in the area where, where technology is the air we breathe. It, it is the primary industry in this area where uh, most people I know, most people in our church either work in tech or they have you know one or two degrees of separation removed from somebody close to them who works in tech and um i think one of the benefits it's given me is uh some of the luster is off mm-hmm. you know i um there's so many people in our church who again they make the stuff that is so ubiquitous in our lives that i um i just i'm not i'm not as enamored with all of the oh my gosh, you know, you, you made an iPhone or <laughs> It's like lots yeah. of people in our church work on the iPhone and the watch and a billion different other things. So actually one of the gifts that that's afforded me is the ability to have conversations up close with incredibly brilliant men and women who, um, are, are literally, you know, on the inside, creating the stuff that is so again, so ubiquitous and pervasive in our lives. And because some of the luster is off, um, I've been able to learn from these people, you know, that ultimately at the end of the day, uh, human experience mediated by digital means um, falls short in some form or fashion of actual meaningful human interaction. It's not to say that it's not helpful. It absolutely is. I'm actually quite grateful for so many of the digital technologies at our disposal. But um yeah, you know, when I have these face-to-face conversations with with folks who are making this stuff, it's been really helpful to hear from them about the limitations of the of the things that they're making, mm-hmm. you know, and and that's been helpful for me in terms of sort of propelling my thinking about why embodied people, I think need embodied people and embodied realities. And uh so yeah, I'm really grateful um for the fact that God sort of plopped me here in this part of the world. And, and then also, you know, it's Silicon Valley, but it's, to me, it's just home, you know, this is where I've been my whole life and uh, I'm comfortable here. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a gift overall.
0: Another thing that I I wanted to ask you about, like one of the things that I've been trying to think through um, for probably like the past year or so is how do you disciple someone In a digital age, because especially like what comes to mind for me is that, you know, for for a lot of the people who are showing up on a Sunday morning, you know, you get them for an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes, you know, depending on how long your service is. Um, And meanwhile, they're listening to, you know, 10 hours of the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. Or they're (laughs) they're watching Fox News or they're watching TikTok or CNN and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. and literally spending you know 10 10x 20x times from from church and everything yeah. and so that's one of the yeah. things that i've been thinking about and i would just love your thoughts on on just on just that of like ex- just exploring through that dynamic of how to disciple people in the midst of like all of this stream of of content and everything
1: yeah uh yeah i think that's a great question um you know uh my friend patrick miller he just wrote an article on the gospel coalition um and it was something about like i lost my mom to facebook or something you know and he's got this fantastic quote in the in the article he says pastors need to be aware that every day of the week their congregants or their church members are being instructed and most likely their mentor is an algorithm so it's to your point you think about just the amount of content and the time spent on particular content, the reality is churches and pastors don't stand a chance. So if we think that preaching a dynamic sermon for 35 minutes on a Sunday is going to get the job done and we're fooling ourselves, right? Because Mm -hmm. people are ingesting uh, the, the, whatever their news app of choice on their phone, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever it might be that, you know, they're YouTube. They're like, YouTube oh, yeah. is the biggest at this point, you know, far and away, the biggest sort of social media um, uh, platform out there. So, you know, you think about just time and amount of content. The sermon does not stand a chance. Yeah, The sermon then needs to galvanize our people toward a life um, that is centered around. Uh, Christ and, and the scriptures. So, you know, I I think really, in in many ways, what we need to do is not just preach at our people about being disciples of Jesus, we need to inspire and then equip our people um, to live a life of formation into Christ likeness. And that means especially in our day and age, point blank, very head on addressing the reality of social media and naming it and saying like, listen, we are all being formed every single day by these algorithms that do not have our best intentions in mind. To the algorithm, I am simply a product, right? I'm not even a customer. I'm a product being bought and sold on the market of the digital age. My information, my proclivities, my preferences, my opinions, you know, and we have to help our people understand that and then give them very clear, practical, accessible tools and hookholds um, to begin intentionally forming their lives in a different way. You know, the writer, uh, Jamie Smith, James K. Smith, he says uh, he calls human beings liturgical animals. And what he means by that. Um, He has this other line. He says, every human lives life leaning forward. In other words, you live in a particular direction, what he calls a telos, right? He's borrowing from the philosopher Charles Taylor there. But basically, every person is being formed every moment of every day. And if we are not intentional, culture at large, and specifically social media and the digital age, they will form us if we are not intentional about our formational journey. So I think doing that work, you know, heightening the awareness, deepening the need and then inspiring and equipping our people with practical tools. Maybe it's like a rule of life Mm -hmm. or spiritual practices or teaching on digital Sabbath, you know, those sorts of things I think are, are going to become increasingly important in the digital age. Uh, if, if we want to do the work of helping our people, um, journey, the path of discipleship to Christ and step off of the path, uh, of discipleship to the digital, you know? So there's a lot, a lot of work to be done, but I think that is one of the primary questions we need to be asking for sure.
0: Yeah. And it even gets me thinking of just like this, this, um, this tension that is named in scripture as well of like being in the world but not of the world of being on, you know, being on social media, but not being like controlled or like addicted to social media. Yeah. Um, can you, can you talk about like how, what has helped you like manage that tension? Because that's one that I experienced too. There's part of me that's like, I don't want to get on social media. I just want to be, I want to be done with it. But then there's also like this, this sense of, um, I don't know if, if duty is the right word, but I don't want to abandon it and just let, you know, <laughs> everything go crazy there.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One, I'm not sure that anybody could stop everything from going crazy there. So <laughs> I think we just have to reckon with the fact that it's already crazy and it's already crazy to the point, you know, that it just sort of it crazy is the air you breathe in the social media realm. But that is not to say that followers of Jesus cannot take redemptive action in the midst of the crazy, in the midst of the madness. And that's al- that has always been the way of Jesus, you know, for followers of Jesus to step into a mad world and take redemptive action and paint a, paint a picture, paint a vision of what might be possible, a better life, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Christians can and should, to a certain extent, take redemptive action in the space of social media. At the same time, I would say, um, you know, for me personally, yeah, I'm I'm like you. I I contemplate getting off of social media all the time. In fact, I probably would be off of social media were it not for the fact that, you know, some of my work is public and there's a whole thing and kind of the world of, book publishing where you know they they sort of push you toward uh being in that space so um so because i need to be in that space yeah i have some parameters in place so i uh i practice digital sabbaths so one hour a day i got this from andy stanley one hour a day one day a week one week a year where i'm literally completely unplugged and that's Mm -hmm. a game changer for me um I don't have social media on my phone. I have Instagram on my phone, but I don't have Twitter or Facebook on my phone. And that's been helpful because it's actually far less convenient to try to log on to Twitter and Facebook on your desktop or your laptop. So I find myself going on it way less. And when I go on it, I find myself going on it only because I have a particular purpose to go on. So that would be one of my recommendations, whether you delete it or not, um, ask yourself every time you go on social media, why really? Like, why am I really going on? And if the answer is just to sort of mindlessly, numbly scroll the feed, then my my recommendation would be don't go on. You know, if you're going on to share some information you think is helpful or or whatever, great. But Uh, yeah, I recommend very, very, very strongly against going on social media just to pass the time, Mm -hmm. because I think that's when it forms us the most. Mm -hmm. And I think that our loss of aptitude for boredom in the digital age is having, um, it's having a a tremendously adverse effect on our ability to think critically, think deeply, think slowly, um, so yeah i mean there are so many different practices people can institute in their lives but those are some that come to mind
0: yeah can you talk more about boredom as well and like its um, connection to our ability to think
1: yeah i um you know often i'll find myself uh, even though i don't have social media on my phone i'll find myself waiting in line at the grocery store or the dmv or whatever. And I'll just find myself opening my email for no good reason, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or Instagram for no good reason, or my, uh, you know, sports app to check the scores or whatever. And I guess that's all fine. It's all well and good if it's in moderation, but, um, I, I have in the past found myself doing that literally almost like a physical tick. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I don't, if I, if I'm idle in any moment of life, my body I would find my hand just reaching for my back pocket, reaching for the phone with no good reason for it. And what I discovered was that, you know, I started asking the question, how did I, what did I used to do when I was waiting in line at the grocery store or the DMV or whatever before the smartphone? And I realized, oh, I used to sit there with my thoughts and sometimes it was boring. Um, but then I began giving, giving attention to like, okay, if sitting with my thoughts is a form of thoughtfulness, which it is, because that's literally what it means to be thoughtful is to think, you know, and to, to sit with your thoughts for a while. Then just by the math of it, what I realized was I am becoming a less thoughtful person because I am thinking less and I'm entertaining myself more so i am a well entertained less thoughtful person and then i just began asking myself the questions like is that who i want to be like at the end of my life do i want to look back and say you know i wasn't very thoughtful but man did i consume a lot of entertainment hmm. and no that's not who i want to be so um you know that that's i think that's the importance of boredom and i think a lot of people will will relate to this. Sometimes what starts out as boredom, you discover that is like boredom has is often the entryway into deep thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, You have to sort of pass through the valley of boredom to get to those places sometimes where you're like, oh my goodness, like I, I haven't connected those dots before. I haven't really thought about yeah. it in that particular way. And I think we're losing our ability to think deeply because we're losing our aptitude for boredom. Mm. And uh, so I think that, yeah, I think boredom's critically important, actually, for that reason. And, and I would encourage anybody and everybody to sort of embrace moments of boredom in their life.
0: Mm. Yeah. It even gets me thinking, like in my own life, of like, that's that usually gives me the space to remember the things that are most important to me or the things that yeah. bothered me throughout yeah. throughout the day that I just br- I literally brushed right past it because things are too busy
1: yeah that's right yeah that's exactly right yeah and I think busyness is a part of it too we move so fast we fill our time and we jam pack our, our days with so much that again we're, we're we're not only losing our aptitude for boredom we're losing our aptitude for the slow and steady hmm. but I think most of us would agree that most of the time the most meaningful stuff of life comes about through a slow and steady process Hmm. you know you think about raising children or a marriage or graduating from school or achieving a promotion or the life of spiritual growth i mean all those things they're slow and steady processes you know And so it's, it's, you know, not just our lack of boredom, that's dangerous. It's our lack of ability to go slow, to be patient, you know? And, and I think it's having, yeah, really destructive consequences uh, in people's lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Talk to me about like the, the kid dynamic and all this or the middle school student and the high school student too, because they're going through this as well as while we're trying to figure it out. And, and if, you know if someone who's listening and like they have they have kids and they're like okay I have I have no idea what to do how do I disciple mm-hmm. my kids through this what what would be some of your thoughts on discipling you know pre you know preteens sometimes even a little bit younger middle school students high school students like that
1: yeah I say this humbly because my children are young my kids are mm-hmm. only 7 and 4 so um, they don't have smartphones, obviously. Their screen time is really limited in our home. We let them watch uh, a movie on Friday nights that they pick together. But beyond that, they don't watch TV or have an iPad or anything like that. So yeah, I mean, this is all conjecture. There are people who have more experience than me that that I think could speak to this um, far more effectively. But yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One, I think one of the really... Um, one of the real challenges of the digital age and parenting kids who have digital devices in the digital age is that you have to, you know, practice what you preach as a parent. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really work if, if as a parent I'm on my phone constantly, but I'm telling my kid get off your phone. That just, it literally, it doesn't work, you know, that rings hollow. So that's where I think a part of it begins. Like, are you living a life of limits when it comes to digital devices? And if you're not, it's, it's, it's a bit ridiculous to expect your children to, right? So it begins with us as parents. And then beyond that, I think, you know, some of it comes down to, and again, I don't want to tell parents how to, how to parent. Um, I I think that every parent should do what what they believe to be best uh, for their kids. But in some ways, it just comes down to the liberation of limits, you know, to to teach our kids. It's actually having limitations that frees us to live the sort of life we want to live. You know, if you just have like limitless access to this thing that has a limitless boundary where you have access to anything around the world, you know, any bit of information, any video on YouTube, whatever it might be. Um, you find yourself actually quite paralyzed and enslaved, you know, mm. so and addicted, really. And and enslavement and addiction, in many ways, are the same thing. Mm. So, yeah, those are some some thoughts that come to mind. One, practice what you preach. So you got to embody, you know, digital limits and the liberating sort of effect of limits in your own life, and then teach the liberation of limits to your children. And then help them fill that time with more meaningful stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. um, go on a walk instead of watching a movie, go for a hike instead of sitting around the table, everyone on their phones, you know, Mm -hmm. um, cook a meal instead of, uh, whatever, you know, throwing open the iPad and just scrolling your newsfeed or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think it gets down to the practical, you know, practice what you preach and, uh, expose your children to the liberation of limits
0: yeah and that idea of limit again i'm i'm not a parent myself but i can just imagine like limits i almost feel like maybe almost like goes against like the tendency for wanting to be a parent because you want you want what's best you want your kids to be able to experience as much as life as possible have the best life yeah. as possible um and yet as we are talking about in this sometimes the best thing is a limit
1: yeah <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, so you, we, we mentioned it earlier, but you've written this book, Analog Christian. And anytime that someone releases a, a work of art, I, or in this case, you know, and I, I would consider a book work of art, too. Um, I love hearing the story behind it. And so I would just love to hear, like, what is the, the thing, the series of events that led you to go, okay, I, I want to start working and exploring this topic, exploring these ideas and put this out in the world.
1: Yeah. It was just my own digital addiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've talked about it already. I just found myself really tethered to my phone. Um, I, I, And I realized that wasn't the life I wanted to live, you know? So <clears throat> I had this moment several years ago when my children were really young and uh, I took this photo of them and it was like this beautiful photo. So I started cropping it and editing it when all of a sudden my daughter like pulls on my pant leg, you know, so I've been I've been lost in this digital image of my of my daughter when my actual human daughter was just standing right there in front of me. <laughs> Long story short, for me, that was such a sobering moment. I just realized this is not, this is no way to live. This is not the sort of father I want to be. This is not the sort of human I want to be. And so that's where it began, you know. How 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 did I get here? And what's a what's the path out? You know, what what's the path forward? And for me. Uh, what I discovered was, you know, Paul's words in Galatians five, when he describes the fruit of the spirit and, and these beautiful characteristics of the fruit of the spirit, I just realized each of those characteristics sort of juxtapose over and against and act almost as remedies for um, so much that ails us in the digital age. Um, so that's where the book came from. It just, you know, in, in many ways, I've told people this book really in, in some ways is a prayer. You know, for me, it's it's just uh, my prayer to God that he would, by his spirit, form me into the sort of person he's always longed for me to be and and cultivate those characteristics uh, of the fruit of the spirit in me in such a way that um, I might experience the fullness of life that God has for me. So in short, that's kind of where the book came from.
0: Yeah. What's one of the ideas that has been most. Uh, that has resonated the most with you from the book that you cover?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> that's an interesting question, you know. I wrote the book, so I guess the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to yeah. say. I mean, honestly, it's hard to say. I don't have one particular idea yeah. that's resonated the most. It's just, yeah, the, the entire thing to me yeah. is just, to I like the way you put it, that books are works of art. Like, yeah. it is just a single piece that I'm offering the world that I hope is, is helpful for folks.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the ideas that you talk about in there is you talk about how so much behind the hate that we see online in discussions on forums, on Reddit, whatever it might be um, behind that often tends to be people who are hurting very much, Yeah, but it doesn't always look like that. And so what have you learned about how to connect with someone in such a way that like they, they open up to with open up to you and you can kind of like figure out what, what is hurting them and really bond or care for them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think human beings have a tendency to caricaturize others, you know, sort of categorize someone because they said a particular thing and then we just kind of assume, Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Like I know exactly what that person's about, but human beings are really complex creatures made up of um, all sorts of stories and histories and, uh, a variety of things that have happened to us and, and things that we've done and, you know, wrestle, we wrestle with guilt and shame and pride and everything in between. So I think the tendency to to caricaturize or categorize people a particular way um, leads us to, uh, you know, assuming, not just assuming, but like essentially making enemies out of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, when we begin to lean into each other, lean into each other's stories, and really that comes by way of listening, patiently listening, asking questions, um, asking about someone's history, you realize often what expresses itself as hatred, maybe especially online is actually most of the time, um, the expression of hurt of real pain, you know? And what's interesting to me about that is, is, uh, hurt or pain is actually really solid common ground upon which people who maybe assume themselves to be enemies can stand firm and realize, Oh, we're like actually not as far apart as we thought we were, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and we have some overlap in our stories. I can relate to whatever X, Y, and Z and these different things that you have gone through or are going through. So, Yeah, again, the digital age is all about speed. It's about efficiency. And so it's all about caricaturizing and characterizing people a certain way, categorizing them a certain way. Um, And I think the way to remedy that and to see the hurt behind the hate is to slow down and to ask questions instead of make declarative statements and uh, to listen instead of shout and, and, you know, scream at one another. And that's really hard to do because most people online are shouting and screaming (laughs) at one another, you know, but I think it's, it's our listening silence that can actually in a weird way, cut through that noise Mm -hmm. and become sort of a healing balm to those who actually deep down inside are not hateful. They're actually just hurting, you know? And um, so that's hard work. It's easier actually to scream and shout at each other. But I think when we slow down to listen to one another, um, we'll discover common ground in, in uh, beautiful new ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Another thing that you talk about in the book is you you compare and contrast how the early church was in terms of um, commitment and belonging. and you and you reference and cite how sometimes like belonging might come after like months of interacting with people or in, or in some case of years to belonging to a church. And then you contrast that to what is very popular today in the attractional movement. You know, it's, it's getting people quick. It's getting them plugged in, you know, basically as, as quickly as possible, as soon as possible. And um, again, that's just another idea that I've just been wrestling with is as well of balancing that dynamic of building strong communities while at the same point of trying to, reach people and i would just love your thoughts on like how do you balance that like personally in your own life as well and at your church Mm. what
1: a great question yeah i'm not sure if if we try so much to balance it Mm -hmm. here um i i think we're just trying to meet people where they are and discover the pace at which they're moving and then give our best attempt at journeying alongside them at the pace at which they're moving so you know i serve on staff at a pretty large church so it gets difficult because we have to scale whatever it is we do and the reality is like the classic sort of traditional attractional movement model is easier it's just it's easier to say hey welcome to our church go to first base and second base and third base and go home (laughs) that's like easier to do and i'm not critiquing that model i think it served us well for many years but for us here we we talk more along the lines of of like pathway language we just say that journeying with christ and being formed into his likeness is a path and the path is windy and there's all sorts of on ramps to the path and off ramps and we actually can't we can see the horizon but we can't actually from where we stand we can't see the end of the path. And one of the reasons is because we believe that the journey of discipleship to Jesus, formation into Christ likeness, is a journey you take for a lifetime. You know, it'll take you your entire life. And so, what that means is we have to discover joy in the journey, in the process, rather than hinging all of our joy on arrival, you know, otherwise mm-hmm. you'd live a completely joyless life. So, um, we try to do it that way here. Yeah. And Uh, It's been helpful in in some ways, you know, it still gets very practical nuts and bolts like we offer small groups and uh, mid-sized sort of meetup environments, you know, we offer spiritual direction and counseling. Uh, We're discussing now offering sort of mentoring and Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying as as best as we can to personalize as much as we can, Uh, but it is a challenge because each person is very different, Um, but I think to the point of your question. Yeah, it really matters that we sort of don't just funnel people into a machine expecting to get the same little product at the end on the, you know, the sort of factory line or Mm -hmm. whatever, but um, try to try to see people as individuals and do our best to come alongside them uh, when we can.
0: Yeah. Is there anything like, I don't know if it's just like a way of thinking or a practice that helps you focus more on that journey? or that path mindset that you were talking about?
1: Oh yeah. Um, Good question. We very rarely talk about arrival here or arriving. Mm -hmm. We just, we try our best to talk about the journey talk about the path. and, And we try to be really honest that often that journey looks like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. It just goes that way. You know, that's, that's life. And that's a human life. That's, sort of the ebb and flow of of human experience. Um, So we try to talk about it that way and we try to create as many on-ramps as possible. And we try to emphasize maybe this above all else. We try to emphasize uh, the fact that, um, you know, the Christian life by its nature is a communal life, that when you are saved by Christ, you are saved into a body. Mm -hmm. And so we try to push that as well. Don't do this alone. Yeah. Get together with some people in our church who can come alongside you and encourage and challenge you and, and push and prod you in the direction of, of growth and development and you know faithfulness to Christ and discipleship to him.
0: Mm-hmm. You have this quote in the book to where you say, in a culture as individualistic and pluralistic as ours, leaving the old and discovering the new is celebrated and revered above almost all else and i would love to ask you what are some practices that help you like remain grounded in the old and in the history and then the past and the foundation that has come before while also paying attention to to the new as well and like the new context the new moment that is happening
1: yeah i mean i I, i try really hard to ask the question pretty consistently when there's A dilemma I'm facing, or a theological issue, I try to ask the question: What has the Christian Church said on this matter for the past Mm -hmm. two thousand years? Mm -hmm. Um, I also try my best to stay away, if I can, from questions about what form the Church should take. That com that conversation is like really rich and robust online right now. You know, like online or in person, and on (laughs) and on and on. And And, you know, I wrote a book a couple years ago about embodied church, you know, yeah. analog church, but really generally I try to stay away from the questions about the form the church should take and try to ask consistently questions about the function that the church plays and has played for two millennia. Um, and then of course, scripture, that's the primary one. We have this incredible ancient library of books that offers us the stories of God and his people. And, um, so I go there often regularly consistently yeah. um to to remember you know i think the call to remember is a key call in the bible god is constantly telling the israelites in the wilderness hey remember remember don't forget and every time they forget something terrible happens you yeah. know so um yeah there you go those are just a, a few things
0: yeah i i love the function over form because just what it made me think of um and is that function often will determine the form then like yeah, if the function is discipleship, then it doesn't become so much about how we disciple, just that we disciple, and we'll take whatever forms that it takes to disciple somebody.
1: Yes, mm, yeah. that's right. Mm, yeah,
0: I love that. Okay, so you mentioned memory, which touches on like another uh, one of the things that I I loved most about the book. And you talk about this idea of choosing faithfulness instead of uh, forgetfulness. Can you tease that out? And then there's a couple other like I, there's a couple other things I want to ask you about that.
1: Sure. Yeah you know by forgetfulness what i don't mean is like oh forgetting where your keys are because you looked at your phone for too long that's not what i mean Mm -hmm. i mean generally forgetfulness in the sort of um hebrew scriptures you know exodus narrative sort of forgetfulness yeah um moses tells the people of israel over and over again do not forget do not forget remember remember and every time he says that what he's ba- basically what he's talking about is faithfulness to God. He's saying, "Hey, do not forget God brought you out of Egypt. Do not forget he parted the Red Sea. Do not forget he provided bread for you falling from the sky, right? Do not forget. Do not forget. Don't be forgetful. You have to remember God's faithfulness, right? Which is why I juxtapose those two in the book. And by faithfulness, you know, I think most of us most people hear the word faith. And they think of like intellectual assent. People think I have faith in God. And what that means is in my brain, I believe that there is some divine being, you know, is the creator of all things. Biblically speaking, though, faith or faithfulness, those two words are translated into the same Greek word, pistis. And the Greek word pistis doesn't mean intellectual belief. It means embodied trust, It means having enough faith that you would you would lay your life on the on the line uh, in belief of this particular person, you know. So there's this famous story about this uh, uh, who was at the time the world's greatest tightrope artist named Charles Blondine. And a lot of people know his story because he's the guy that would you could look up photos on Google. He's the guy that would tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. And he was so good, he would do this with all sorts of different contraptions. So there's this famous story about Blondine where he took a big wheelbarrow out to the tightrope over Niagara Falls. And there's this huge crowd surrounding him. And Blondine says to them, who believes I can cross Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, I believe you can do it. Essentially, they're saying, I have faith. I mentally believe you can do it. And then Blondine says, who believes I can cross Niagara Falls with another person inside the wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, yeah, you can do it. I mentally believe. I have faith you can do it. And then Blondine asks the question, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And literally not a single hand goes up, right? And the way we think about faith today, it's those first two. It's those first two answers. It's like intellectually, I believe. But faith, biblically, pistis, embodied trust is the ability and the willingness to get into the wheelbarrow. Mm. To essentially, with your entire body, tell God, yeah, I believe you can do this. I can't do it, but I know you can. And I'll I'll lay I'll lay myself down and willingly offer my life because I believe you can do it. Mm. And so um I think in life particularly in the digital age we forget this and that's what I mean by forgetfulness we forget that we are called as followers of Jesus to live in fidelity to, to Christ and Christ alone um, to live in such a way that uh you know we get into the wheelbarrow essentially yeah. and let God take us on a journey that we could never have taken on our own so uh, a lot more to say there but those are some some initial thoughts
0: yeah and I want to follow up on, uh, you you mentioned a couple of re- three reasons actually why we tend to um, to forget and displacement, trace decay, and retrieval failure. Can you un- unpack those and kind of what they are and some of the the things that can help us overcome those reasons why we forget?
1: Yeah, those those are words and ideas that come from, you know, um neuroscience and psychology and, and specifically the fields that study memory, human memory. So they're not like theological terms, they're actually like scientific terms. Yeah. Um but so there, so there are three sort of dominant reasons for forgetfulness. That's what they are. Um and displacement is uh when like there's like constantly new bits of information that are that are entering your brain, and those new bits of information sort of discard or replace or displace uh, previous bits of information that never made it to your long-term memory. right? So I don't know, sort of a simplistic example of this would be if you're a waiter at a restaurant and you think you're awesome, so you go, to a table of 10 people and you say, Hey, w- what would you guys like to eat? And you decide you're not going to write it down. And mm-hmm. so the first customer says, Oh, I want a cheeseburger with some curly fries. And then on down the line, by the time you get to like the seventh customer, you're like, you forgot what that first person wanted. Okay. That's displacement. Um, uh, truth decay is just time. It's just when uh, you don't, when you don't, what they say is like, when you don't rehearse a memory, right so memories in order for one for them to make their way to long term memory and two for them to really lodge themselves in your memory bank you have to rehearse the memory that doesn't mean physically you have to like do the actions necessarily although that helps it just means like you think back on the thing you know consistently um so trace decay happens just over time when we fail to sort of rehearse particular memories um and then the memory is sort of gone. And then retrieval failure is, uh, it's really fascinating actually. There's um, even when something, even when a memory gets stored in your long-term memory where it's very difficult to lose that memory, um, often to retrieve particular memories from our long-term memory, we we will often need like cues right external cues um this is actually this this happens to people all the time if you think about it this is like what happens not retrieval failure but essentially retrieval success mm-hmm. happens when uh you walk into a store and there's a song playing uh, in the background of the store and it was your favorite song in 8th grade and then literally in a in an instant you can see in your mind your best friend from eighth grade and that dance you went to with that girl you really liked. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Like oh, that happens all oh. the time because an external cue triggers a memory. And retrieval failure is when you cannot retrieve particular memories because there are not the necessary cues uh, externally. So um, there you go. It's kind of like neuroscience yeah. psychology, but yeah. but all of those things sort of are are, are different you know, different forms or functions of, uh, of memory. Yeah.
0: Memory. Well, I know that you touched on a little bit of here, but I would just love to ask, what are some of the the practices that help you better remember? Like the, the faithfulness component that we were talking about, like what is God, like what God has done in your life, what helps you remember that stuff? Or what are some of the things you've put in place to help you do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I I think that, for example, like with truth, tr- uh, with trace decay, mm-hmm. To me, it's like one of the reasons why we sing, as an example. Like every time I come to church on Sunday and I sing these songs about God's goodness or his faithfulness or whatever, on the one hand, I could just say like, oh, my gosh, this song again, you know? Yeah. But I don't because I know that I need to be reminded. Otherwise, like that the truth that's stored in my heart and mind, it will decay. Like the noise of my life will eventually push out those truths. And I'll just forget. So one of the reasons we sing is to remember, is to remind ourselves of who God is, what he's up to, his love for us. You know, one of the reasons why uh, we we gather in community or we have maybe like spiritual practices, maybe it's getting up early in the morning, making yourself a cup of coffee, pouring it into your favorite mug, sitting in your favorite reading chair and reading scripture, those sorts of things. That's like, that's, it's a means of, of um, retrieving memory, you know, creating the external cues um, to retrieve the memory, to remember that God has always been faithful, will always be faithful and that we are called to be faithful in return. So yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I talk about it more in the book, but I think yeah. practices of like spiritual practices and practices of Christian community matter so much for those types of reasons to help us remember what's actually true in the midst of a world, a noisy world that is really interested in replacing those truths mm-hmm. with cultural versions of truth.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that we've covered a lot of stuff and I got one other thing I want to ask you about, but is there anything that we haven't covered that is just top of mind in the book that you want to make sure that we talk about an idea that you're thinking about anything like that?
1: No, I mean, yeah, I, I've appreciated these questions and obviously there's a lot more in the book. Yeah. So if anyone's interested, they could just dive into the book. But yeah, this this has been great.
0: Okay, yeah. cool. The the other thing that I want to ask you about is I know that you also um are getting ready to release this study on the book of Colossians as well. Oh, right. Too. Yeah. And so I I would just be curious and I would love to hear what are like one or two things through going through this study of Colossians or going through it for, for, um, through this time that is just like hit you in a fresh way or you've learned from reading through the book.
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. That. What a great question. Yeah. Um, and,
0: and if you got more than like, I won't limit you. If you've got more than one or two, you can share <laughs> however much you want.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, first of all, Colossians is this fascinating book. I think one of the main themes of the book is that um, we are not the center of the universe <laughs> and that mm-hmm. Jesus is at the center of the universe. Um, so that's, again, it's almost like the, the retrieval failure we so often forget that truth and i don't think we forget it intellectually i think most christians if you were to like verbally ask them they would say like oh no jesus is at the center but what i mean is like in an embodied way like our embodied lives betray that truth we forget with with our lives we live and move and act as if we are the center of of the universe and that's really dangerous you know so, um, that's one of the things that stands out to me. I think Colossians is one of those one of those letters, one of those books that you can read forever and ever, you know, like mm-hmm. almost on a weekly, maybe monthly basis. And it's just like so rich, so helpful to reorient you around this idea that Christ is at the center. Uh, The other thought that comes to mind is, you know, Colossians um, in Colossians three, Paul talks about the peace of Christ. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Mm -hmm. And I think that that just speaks to the to our day and age, you know, to our cultural moment, you know, in a world of outrage and hostility, followers of Jesus are actually called to be one body you know, uh, called to peace and to allow the, the peace of Jesus Christ to rule and reign in our hearts. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more that Paul says about that in the letter, but I think, um, that's a really pertinent word for our day and age.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Jay, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, analog Christian and the study on Colossians too, and just keep up with you with, with all of that good stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to, uh, do all those things.
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking, Caleb. Um, yeah. I have a little website, uh, jkimthinks.com and all my stuff is there. And then, you know, for any of the stuff I've I've released, whether it's the books or the Colossians study, um, yeah, you can find it anywhere they sell books. So Amazon or anywhere else.
0: Awesome. Well, Jay, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It was a joy.
0: So coming out of that conversation with Jay, I think here's a couple of things that I am thinking about with this. The first thing is what we were talking about with community as well. And just realizing that, that if you want to have strong community, then there has to be strong requirements or guidelines for that community there has to be some code of conduct that that almost helps you I I don't know I'm still fleshing out like the vocabulary for this but helps you establish like strong attachments to the people because if if it is a very come as you go or or however you feel, type of community, um, and then there there is spaces for those. However, if you're looking to build deep community, then it's going to require strong attachments. And just thinking through through my context as a church of how do you build those strong attachments? Build build that strong community because there's many people who do need that strong community. There's many people who wish that they had that type of community and so thinking through how do you build that type of community while at the same time creating those types of gatherings that help people test it out is one figure out who who their people are and figure out who do they want to be in their circle and spend their time with so that's the first thing i think the the other thing that I just think about is what I, what we were talking about earlier, of just this idea that so many other things are disciplining people, as well, and whether that be um, different podcasts or Tim Harris or Tim Tim Harris, Tim Ferriss, or or Ben Shapiro, or Joe Rogan, or or just who Rachel Maddow. You know who whoever it is, whoever it is, that that there's all of these forms of discipleship that are happening digitally. And I think just learning for myself of being careful about what has influenced me. I, I love what Jay said. It's whenever we are mindlessly scrolling or we are mindlessly engaging with something that it has the the greatest ability to affect us and to influence us. And sometimes that could be the case. For podcasts, and that doesn't mean that we don't listen to things that we disagree with. That's part of the heartbeat of the podcast as well. That helps build that critical thinking muscle, also. But just also learning of how do you engage with with all of these different topics, and and for those of us who are followers of Jesus, how does our faith intersect with those things as well? And that's part of the reason why I'm doing this newsletter as well, to give you some of the things that I am thinking about. And they're going to be from a wide uh, range of perspectives as well. There's going to be times to where I probably will recommend multiple resources that disagree with each other in it, but they can help form us. They can sharpen our arguments, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And they help us think better and think more deeply about some of the topics as well. I think another thing that I thought about, is and this goes back to the the remembering piece, and I don't think we talk about it in the conversation that we talks about in the book. Is the importance of, um, no, he he talked about it in re- in rehearsing stuff, but the importance of engaging in some of these things and in conversation as well, of fleshing out some of our our ideas. And that's one of the things that these these outros particularly help me do. They help me verbalize some of the thoughts that I have and kind of work those out as i uh, reach some of my other conclusions as well and so those are a couple of my takeaways from this if you want to keep up with the learner's corner check out the newsletter it's going to be in the show notes and uh, i send that out once a week and you'll get recommendations of some of the best things that i am currently learning from and some of the things i am thinking about as well And that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Jay Kim for being on the podcast today. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.